Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I am married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I, I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and, and I'm in a different part of the country. I, I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then. And you're really reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? I got an interesting email this week. He says, thank you for taking my email in question. My girlfriend and I are trying to figure out how we can sustain a healthy relationship after sexual betrayal. Well, you know, the truth of the matter is You have to go very, very slow and put her first and find out what her needs are. You have to understand her brain because more than likely her brain is offline and she's going to react very differently than she did before sexual betrayal. You've got to be patient. You've got to listen You've got to validate her feelings. You know, what I always say is acknowledge the pain or the issue, validate the feelings, and reassure her that you're there for her, even though you weren't there for her before. You know, I know that's a hard concept for anybody to grasp, but I promise you, if you do that, you're going to help her heal. Now, I want to talk about Valentine's Day because the truth of the matter is Valentine's Day is a very, very tough holiday for any couple. And if you're single and you don't have a Valentine, you can feel like there's something wrong with you, that you're inadequate, that you're missing something. And I always encourage my men and women that are single to spend time with people that matter. Now, I'm hoping that you have somebody in your life that matters. 
Because I do happen to meet a lot of men and women who don't have enough people in their life that help to fill the void of loneliness. Now, I have two thoughts on that. First and foremost, you have to be able to figure out how to fill that wound or that void yourself. What I know to be true is that it also helps if you have people that you care about and care about you, whether it's a sibling, a neighbor, a coworker, an old high school friend. You know, you have to be able to connect because we all know that sexual addiction heightens when you're in isolation, right? And Valentine's Day, I believe, is very, very overrated. It was definitely developed so that you would buy things for your lover or your your girlfriend, your boyfriend. But I also really believe in appreciating the people in your life that are special to you. I mean, and if you need a day to remind you to do that, so be it. Um, it's kind of interesting. I mean, you got to decide, okay, what do I need to do to increase my connection quotient, right? Now, if you're in a relationship, you may be having some real difficulties if you're listening to the show because what I know is that you feel disconnected. You feel disconnected from the person that you love. If you're a sex addict, you feel disconnected from your partner because you've wounded her so badly that she is keeping her distance. Feel disconnected from the addict because you're keeping him at bay. You're not really opening yourself up to him because you're not sure you can trust him. Okay, so Interestingly enough, I had a couple this week, and he's doing all the right things. I mean, he's doing an amazing job, and she keeps pushing him away. Now, I get that, and I don't fault her for that. I wish I could give her a magic wand and change that about herself, because not only is she cheating him, but she's cheating herself. But the truth of the matter is, I believe they're going to make it. I believe they're gonna, are going to find ways to connect once she increases her safety quotient, right? We talked about the connection quotient, and we talked about the safety quotient. When you have the safety quotient, you got the connection quotient. Well, in this situation, This is a couple that do what I call the trauma dance. And, you know, it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, two men, two women. That trauma dance is a natural byproduct of sexual betrayal. And whether you're in recovery for three months or three years, you may still be dealing collateral damage. So what do you do about that? How do you move a relationship forward? Well, you hire a good therapist. And this is what I did. 
I'm, I'm making it suspenseful here and taking a drink of water. Um, what you do is you give a therapist who's willing to create a connection with her client um, or clients, and then she can give the clients homework assignments. For instance, this week I asked a woman who wasn't really giving her husband his due. She was too afraid. She was she was fearful that she'd get duped again. And I said, I'll call her Barbie. I said, Barbie, I'm going to issue you a challenge for the weekend, just two days, but I want you to try it, and I want you to see if it helps you improve. And she's like, oh, boy, what is it that you want me to do? And I said, I want you to absolutely not be critical of him. I want you to appreciate everything he does that reminds you that he really, really cares about you, right? And I want you to acknowledge him when you see that he's trying. And I only want you to do this for two days, not for the rest of your life. And she goes, well, what good is it going to do if I just do it for two days? And by the way, Carol, I don't think I can do it for two days. And I said, well, I am a believer in the old adage, fake it till you make it. That is a concept that originated from the act as if principle in recovery. And when you act as if, tend, you visualize, you enact a certain scenario as if it's really occurring, even if deep down inside you're afraid to do that. And, you know, Partners have every reason to be afraid. But if they're in good recovery and if their husband has been in good recovery and if the partner doesn't seem to acknowledge or notice the changes, it's time to make a shift. It is time to notice what is right. And if you act as if, for at least two days, you at least experience a different sensation than you've done before. And when you do that, you may even begin to trust him again. Because the truth of the matter is you have to trust again. So let's give it some very short but important and impactful opportunities to trust. And that may mean when he does all the house cleaning, you thank him and say, I am really lucky that he's doing all that for me. And that may mean when he wants to shift the energy and he says, please give me a hug, that you do walk over and allow yourself to receive the benefits of a hug. Act as if you're comfortable with that person and you're comfortable with yourself. And see as some magic occurs, if only 
for a short amount of time. Now, tonight, I'm going to be interviewing Peter Cooper, who's going to be discussing a book that he is currently in the process of writing that is tentatively titled The Flow of Self and Sexuality. It kind of opens up with a short autobiographical section as well as he ties them into, he ties sexuality and the flow of self-esteem into the elements of nature, including earth, air, fire, water, and the rest. And he believes that in actuality, when you work on connecting to those major elements in life, you're much better able to feel the flow and you're able to understand your own sexuality as well as all aspects to life. So I can't wait to talk to him because he has um, lectured all over the world and he promises that this conversation will help us look at our own life, our sexuality, and our self-esteem and access resources to increase our satisfaction. Now, you know, I could say, hey, addicts are really self-absorbed and they have to feel that satisfaction. But the truth of the matter is, All people have that need to to find and make out of life things that bring them happiness. As I indicated before, Valentine's Day is a very tough day. It's hard for regular couples and it's certainly hard for betrayal. And so I want you to kind of shake off any of the negativity that you experienced this weekend Be glad that that part is over and ask yourself, how can I contribute to my relationship today? Because really, you either contaminate what's going on in your life or you contribute to it. And I've seen many a person who has been able to accept exactly what is And because of their recovery, support the people around them, they love. They're in the flow. They're in the flow of their own sense of self. And so luckily, we do have Dr. Peter Cooper, who's going to be discussing that flow. And he's going to tell us how to do that. So Dr. Peter Cooper, I want to welcome you to Sex Help with Carol the Coach. Hey, Carol, it's nice to be talking with you. Thanks for having me. Well, I appreciate that, too. I mean, I know I reached out to my community and I said, hey, I really want to have people contribute to the wealth of information for our listeners. And you are writing this book right now. You you believe it's going to be called The Flow of Self and Sexuality. And so tell us a little bit about the book. A, what made you write it? And I hear that it starts out a little bit with your autobiography. 
Yeah, there's there's a, a a fair section of an autobiographical piece in it. Um, that's that's where it starts. It gives a little bit of um, an introduction as to, uh, into me and and my personal experiences as a person, and then some of my professional experiences and uh, things that I've accomplished. So uh, yeah, it it sort of introduces me as a person and a conglomeration of all of those things, and then it goes into uh, when we talk about the flow of, of things, not just sexuality, but life and mm-hmm. uh, the, the, four, the, the five natural elements of uh, earth, air, fire, water, and void of, uh, of nature. And so I kind of flow, as, as it were, throughout the book. Uh, and the book isn't completed yet. I'm still, it's still being written. But, um, you know, making those connections of earth, air, fire, water, and void – and how to connect each one of those natural elements to our psyche. Um, Jung might, might have, uh, may have called it the collective unconscious, things of that nature. Um, and applying that to, to not like I said, not only sexuality, but of, of our lives. Um, so earth, for example, I use the, uh, I speak in metaphors and analogies a lot. And with uh, the earth uh, construct, the earth element, I use uh, Jack and the Beanstalk uh, as, a, as an example of that. So fairy tales, um, like dreams, for example, and even with dream work, um, they're not to be taken literally, but they certainly have uh, been written over the course of uh, at least five millennia uh, in an analogous and metaphorical fashion. So, um, you know, we see Jack bringing, bringing his, his Beanstalk beans. Here's a little bit of a... Uh, history of the story for anyone who doesn't remember it from their childhood. He brings his beans home and his mother is understandably upset, throws them out the window. Overnight, the beans manifest themselves into a beanstalk through through the clouds. It grows. And the beans can be interpreted as the symbolic of our hopes, our dreams, all that we wish to accomplish for ourselves. And so our hopes and dreams and all that we wish to accomplish, along with the solid plan and implementation of that plan, takes inordinate amounts of time and faith and not necessarily God if you happen to be an atheist, but at the very least in ourselves. So those proverbial beans must be planted and cultivated. So basically the seeds of our dreams need to be planted, cultivated, and tended to daily in order to grow and come to fruition. Um, you know, another thing that I mentioned in the the earth construct of the, of the five elements is the tan matras. Um, so we see that uh, as described as a, sort of like a subtle concrete substances possessing physical characters that become actualized and convert into various uh, atomic constituents of gross matter, um, which are also known as the five elements. Um, so, you know, looking, looking at the five elements and earth in particular, um, earth energy, and, and that's another thing to mention about all of the elements is it's it's all energy. So when I talk about flow, it's about uh, energy. So all of the, the five natural elements getting in touch with our with our inner energy, uh, sexually, um, uh, humanistically, and pervading all of all aspects of our lives. So. Uh, you know, the ability to accomplish something in the tangible world is the earth energy within you. 
So Earth-style people live in that material reality. Their whole way of being is focused on practicality, organization, and substance. The power to manifest makes Earth people reliable and responsible. Now, obviously, you've been thinking about this for a while, and you really have tied it into some very important concepts. Um, Tell me a little bit about how you feel that the flow of energy works into sexuality and self-esteem. Oh, that's a good question. So so one of the things I, I mentioned in the book uh, so, and, and to also piggyback on the initial question that you asked me is what prompted me to write the book. Um, there wasn't one, one thing necessarily. There's been a, a conglomeration of a lot of things that prompted me to write the book, which, you know, it would be my first book. I mean, I've, I've uh, done dissertation, obviously, and I've published some things here and there in the, in the academic literature, but I haven't yet uh, written a, a book, as it were. So that's just something I wanted to accomplish for myself and then also to give back to people. And it's, it's sort of structured in uh, a self-help format. And so talking about that and answering, and answering your question, uh, one of the things that I also include in it, in this flow of energy and getting in touch with that and applying it to, again, sexuality, yes, uh, but it's important to understand that with sexuality is a is a part and another element of ourselves as a whole. Um, is the uh, the nine levels of power of ninjutsu, which is uh, Rin, Pyo, To, Sha, Kai, Jin, Retsu, Zai, and Zen. And what each one of those means in English is Rin is strength of mind and body. So breaking that down, you know, we've got to have a strong mind and a strong body. Um, to relate to ourselves and to relate to other people. And in intimate relationships, we, we see this as very important. You know, the ability to communicate, the ability to understand what our partner is telling us, um, the ability to connect sexually. You know, otherwise, the sexual act is just a physical thing, and there's a lot lost in translation when that happens. So to be able to really form a connection uh, with our um, with our partner, whoever that might be, um, that lends itself to having a greater depth of um, connection with the person that we're with. Um, Pyo, which was the second element of uh, the level of power of ninjutsu, and is direction of energy. So again, talk, connecting it to energy. Um, energy is great, and it's it's important to have it, but without some sort of harnessing of that energy or direction of that energy, it's um, it's pretty difficult to make uh, a connection with with another person, or with uh, groups of people, or having inter interrelationships with with each other. Uh, the the energy is kind of all over the place, so we need to have a direction and harnessing of of our energy, and uh, an understanding of that. Uh, to which is harmony with the universe uh, is basically a, um, a synergy of all, I guess, all of the five elements of nature that I mentioned earlier. Sha, healing self and others. Uh, healing, you know, let's look at that verbiage for a moment. Healing, the ability to um, 
I guess I fix things. I'm not sure if that's a, a right um, a right description, but being able to to mend. I like that better. Mending, you know. So where things that we might have um, a, a disruption in some form, shape, or form of our our own sexuality, uh, or an understanding of the person that we're with, you know, especially in long-term relationships, we often see uh, the relationship morphing and sort of be, we have to be malleable in long-term relationships and understanding our partner and understanding ourselves because let's say someone's together for, I don't know, 30 years. Most of the time, or at least ideally, we're not going to be the same exact person that we were 30 years ago. So throughout that process, we need to be able to understand uh, the the process of change and healing, um, you know, comes with growth. There comes and change with growth and change. We need to be able to heal as well because it's um, it's a process of growth and change. Is sort of a breaking down of like in in health and fitness, um, the muscle gets the muscle fibers get torn up a little bit when when we're exercising and everything, and that's. Uh, that's another example of uh, how to be able to heal and mend. So that's how a muscle, for example, grows and gets stronger. Um, Kai is premonition of danger. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Recognizing, you know, re- recognizing um, signs of trouble and being able to identify with that and uh, keeping ourselves safe and keeping uh, the people that we love safe. And so in relationship and relationships or sexuality, um, this really lends itself to having a healthy sexuality is being able to not only heal like in Shaw, but in Kai, making good choices, making good de- uh, decisions and choices of who we might partner up with, uh, who we might lend ourselves to. Because healthy sexuality is, is a real giving of ourselves, but not only a giving of ourselves, but the other people have to earn that you know they have to earn us as as a person um that that's what i feel anyway so in premonition oh, I of danger it's, it's, agree. go ahead yeah i absolutely yeah i agree but now i'm assuming that you work with people clinically as well as your writing is that correct oh absolutely absolutely and so how do you help people to understand what will actually make them feel safe in regard to their sexuality and will be congruent with what they want for themselves and their self-esteem. How do you do that? Right. Right. So, yeah, I, you know, I work full time as a psychotherapist. Um, I work on average uh, anywhere from 10 or 12 hours a day. And uh, so I do this full time. You know, that's that's what I do is is working clinically and professionally. And I'm trying to get the book written, piece it together when I can. You know, so I'm not a full time writer. I'm a full time pr- practitioner. And in in helping people to um, to recognize these things is kind of getting back to what I was saying and alluding to is making good decisions and choices. Um, and I, I think it's really important of self-discovery, you know, learning more about ourselves. So the more, I'm just a real proponent of self-knowledge. Uh, Mindfulness is a huge part of my practice. 
So, you know, knowing, knowing ourselves, uh, mindfulness is a huge catalyst to, to, this, um, to this journey of, of flow and getting people to have a better sense of who they are. And having a better sense of who we are through self-knowledge, and in my opinion, mindfulness is a great way to get there. Um, you know, we, today we call it DBT, Dialectical Behavioral Therapy, but it's just really a fancy word for mindfulness, which has been around for thousands of years. And the practice of mindfulness, um, I guess to answer your question, that's, that's how I go about it. Um, and how I impart this to people is uh, very different. I don't impart it to, to everyone in the same way because I work with, you know, and have worked with everyone uh, young children, uh, adults, geriatrics, men, women, um, all, all groups of people, all different from all different cultures. And so, you know, I can't, I can't sort of um, impart it to people in exact the same, in exactly the same way. But the the gist of it is that um, through mindfulness, through self knowledge, um, we can make those better decisions. We can make healthier choices in who we um, choose as a partner. So mindfulness, I guess, is is the answer to your question. Yeah, I love that. I believe that mindfulness really is um, a safe way to connect to yourself and also to talk about tough issues like sexuality or even self-esteem. I don't know about you, Dr. Pete, but I know that many of the people that I work with have low self-esteem. And Mm -hmm. they come into the office because they have issues around their sexuality, but what I find is it boils down to how they feel about themselves. Do you ever Mm -hmm. see any core issues that come up repeatedly when you're working with clients that either have sexual addiction or who have been betrayed by sex addicts? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question as well. Um, I see a lot of attachment uh, issues going on. Uh, if I guess uh, one of the predominating themes um, of, of people that have a sexual addiction or um, things of that nature um, is attachment. You know, they, they have difficulty with attachment in some way, shape, or form or another. And so uh, one of the things that we're seeing in research is that there's a, not necessarily a causation, but a correlation uh, between sexual addiction, or we can even call it um, uh, sexual obsessiveness or whatever. I mean, the verbiage is in the same ballpark. That's a whole other thing about how we verbalize it, but, but let's just call it sexual addiction. Uh, yeah, attachment issues. That's that's one of the things I, I've seen a lot of uh, permeating different people with the same t- sort of issue. Um, they have difficulty with attachments they, and boundaries. You know, they, boundary issues and attachment issues. Um, they might have porous boundaries, so they might let too many people, they might be too open with their boundaries. They may let, let anyone into their life or into their heart, uh, into their body, whatever. And some of them have rigid boundaries where it's the other way around and they're keeping everyone at, at arm's length and not letting anyone in and not being vulnerable at all. So those, those are some of the pervading things that I've seen in people with uh, sexual addiction. 
And so, obviously, sexuality as well as um, issues surrounding sexual problems that you have done. Now, when you decided to write this book, was that based on the clients that you had or was it based on what you believed people needed to get healthier? It's a little bit of everything. You know, I think um, it's some of my own observations uh, in, in working with, with individuals, um, even some of my own personal experiences, um, and then some of the, the missing elements of what I think are some gaps in, uh, in how this knowledge is presented. And that, again, getting back to some of the natural elements and connecting ourselves with, with nature and the universe. Um, the universe exists, you know, someone, someone can, can be uh, an atheist or not believe in God. That's not, you know, it's really a discussion for an, an, another time, but the universe exists. It's, we know that it does. So trying to find a connection with that bigger, that bigger reality outside of ourselves, I don't think it's been presented in this way, uh, the way that I've presented it. I'm not saying I'm an inventor or anything, but I just think I've um, come up with a way to present these things, sexuality, and in uh, the, the book doesn't um, go specialize into just one area of sexuality. It goes into relationships. It goes into um, sexual behaviors, uh, all, all different aspects or different aspects of sexuality, but in relation to the, to the five natural elements. And I give, like I said, I give examples, metaphorical examples, archetypal examples, um, and so that's what that's what I think was was or has been missing in some of the the literature out there. And this is going to be a self help book. It's it's going to be accessible and readable by a lot of people. It's not um, it's not an academic journal or something of that nature where it's very the style of it is very dry. I think it's very down to earth and, and readable. Well, I would agree that it sounds very readable, but it also sounds like people have to be able to understand the metaphors and mm-hmm. um, how those apply to them. Now, you have lectured and taught all over the world. Tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, not all, not all over the world yet. Um, I hope to one day. I've, around the country, around the U.S., uh, I've gotten that far. I uh, haven't made it abroad at this particular point in time. But um, yeah, uh, I grew up in in New York, in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, it was a pretty rough way of of growing up. Um, it, it just grew up very blue collar. Um, uh, uh, it was a, a tough upbringing. Uh, and on a lot of different levels. And so one of the things that, that helped me through a lot of it, a lot of the difficulties, um, was a work ethic. You know, I knew that I, I had goals, I had aspirations for myself, I had things that I wanted to achieve for myself, and I knew uh, nobody was going to do it for me. So I, I really was always a voracious reader um, from a very young age. Uh, from as a, as a child, I would just be fascinated by things that I would see on TV. Or um, I didn't like school so much at the time, um, 
I I like the social aspect of it. So I did like going to school, but uh, I was a voracious reader, and I didn't like being told what to read uh, at the time by teachers. So uh, I was a voracious reader, and I was very much into uh, uh, film and cinema and, and television, and I was a big big into all that. And um, so one of the things that got me into in, into psychology and into the whole profession, even from an early age, I didn't know, realize that that's what I was doing. But when I would read novels or even nonfiction, uh, but especially novels where we have these archetypal characters, uh, and in cinema, I would I would imagine as a little kid that like, what if this was real? You know, what if we were able to, um, what if these characters were real? And I was able to even even as a child, to through imaginative play, you know sort of um, solve my problems, solve a lot of problems that I had uh, as, as a character, you know, I would, I would work through my problems uh, as a character in my mind anyway. And that's, that's archetypal psychology. And I didn't know, realize that that's what I was doing at the time, like I said, but um, that's a big part of how I grew up. And what brought me to, you know, trying to impart this to other people and teach it to other people as I got older. And, uh, you know, it, it, it pervaded into my adolescence, same kind of thing. I, I did start to become more aware that that's what I was doing as an adolescent, as I read more, and uh, as a young adult. So, yeah, um, you know, I went to school. I uh, got an associate's degree first, and then I got my bachelor's, and my master's and my doctorate and um you know does that give you a little bit of an insight as to where i've come from and and why i do what i do absolutely and obviously you are very dedicated to the field and you and i met through the society and advancement of sexual health so tell me mm-hmm. what made you decide to have a niche in in sexuality yeah, I think, you know, again, going going back a little bit, uh, I was always fascinated with uh, Jung and Freud. I thought they were very fascinating archetypes in and of themselves. I mean, people, uh, real people can be have archetypal qualities to them, and I just found them very, very fascinating, especially Jung, you know, I really got into Jung. And, you know, certainly his... Um, his take on sexuality he veered off from Jung's, I uh, veered off from Freud's, excuse me. And um, so, you know, the, the psychoanalyst, especially Jung, uh, got me into the aspects of sexuality and, and how it relates to psychology and how it, how it relates to our behaviors and how we think and, and, and emotions and feelings, like you alluded to earlier, is um, getting in touch with people's emotions. Um, and I think a lot of, not all, but I think of at least a fair amount, maybe, you know, half the time, uh, people having certain psychological issues or problems can be related to unresolved sexuality. So I think sexuality uh, as a pervading topic um, should be open and should be discussed openly and shouldn't try to hide it or condemn it or um, demonize it. And, um, you know, I think as long as people have the ability to make choices for themselves 
and that that's what I mentioned earlier, you know, trying to getting people um, to make healthy choices and decisions about their sexuality can can really uh, either make their other problems psychologically manageable or or actually ha- for for a person to be able to let those problems go by making good uh, choices regarding sexuality, either who they're with or their perceptions of sexuality. Um, some people have a warped sense of their own sexuality or the sexuality of others. Um, another thing that's always fascinated me is the masculine and the, and the feminine uh, and male and females, the dynamics between us and between men and women. We are wired differently neurologically. Um, and so that's always you know, been a real fascinating uh, that's always fascinated me. It's always interested me a great deal. So those are some, some of the things that got me into studying sexuality and um, yeah, it should be healthy and healthy. You know, what, what someone defines as healthy is not, I guess, I guess not a cookie cutter sort of thing. Um, what one person defines as healthy, another person might not define as healthy, but as long as it's enabled, I guess for me, uh, is an un- umbrella way of describing it. Someone exploring their sexuality or engaging in sexual behavior, that's not really harmful to themselves or anyone else. And if it's not harmful to themselves or anyone else, um, they can learn and grow as a, as a whole person. So, because let's face it, relationships, um, you know, healthy relationships usually have a healthy sexuality attached to them. Um, so it's important. It's really important on so many, so many deep levels, so many different levels, and uh, it's very fascinating to me. Oh, absolutely! And you know, you and I both know how difficult it is for people to talk about their sex lives, and I believe that we, as professionals, need to be comfortable about that. Why do you think people have so much difficulty? Uh, sharing their thoughts about their own sexuality. Um, I think it's been conditioned, you know, into us in in our culture, um, and that's been another facet that's always been fascinating to me about sexuality is culturally, you know, cultural cultural differences of sexuality, and so uh, at least from what I've seen and what I've learned. Um, yeah, in the U.S., we're we're a little bit behind the curve, I think, uh, as far as you know, expressing that in a healthy way. One of the things that I, that I don't understand and I can't really wrap my head around um, is how such violence, like real violence, can be shown on in the media. And that media psychology is something I, I have have a great interest in and always have. Um, but how we can show graphic, graphic violence uh, on television and in, in cinema. And there's, I don't see anything inherently wrong with it if someone is able to process it uh, and, and they're mature enough. But why, especially in, in censoring and, and in, on television, things of that nature, why it's so censored and we, we, we brush it under the rug but we see such violence and on let's say with TV um, brought on broadcast television, um, why we see so much violence and it's okay, but anything somewhat 
sexual or overtly sexual, it's it's condemned and really shut under the um, shoved under the rug. So I think I think we've been conditioned. I think that's why people have such a hard time, at least in our culture in in, US, in the United States, uh, North America, why people have such a hard time talking about it or expressing their own sexuality. Because I think we've been conditioned to that, that it's somehow dirty or wrong, or, you know, that it's inherently bad. And it's not. Well, and I heard I mean, you what... very, mm-hmm. yeah, I heard you very clearly say that you feel like the antidote for that is to be able to talk about it, be able to explore it, be able to do that in a non judgmental way. And so do you find, because I heard you say you work with a variety of clients, you don't just work with people that have problematic sexual behavior, and yet the show is for men and women that have problematic sexual behavior. Do you find that you take a different approach when somebody comes in with compulsivity? Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, I don't, like I said, I don't take a cookie cutter approach to any of my patients. And so if they are coming in with uh, sexual compulsivity or sexual addiction, um, I'm going to approach, I'm a very, I'm a humanist too at heart. So I'm going to approach, like, let's say I had all in one week, let's, and I, I, this hasn't, uh, this hasn't happened because I work with a, a diverse group of people, but let's say I had, 40 hours worth of all sexual compulsives and, you know, from, from 9 a.m. to, you know, when, whenever I stop work uh, every day for an entire week. So let's say I had 40 people and of those 40 people and they all, they all describe themselves or I'm seeing them as sexual uh, compulsive or, or sex addict. They're, they're all still individual human beings with different, um, perceptions, unique perceptions and unique experiences that, yeah, they might have some thematic elements that run throughout them because they have the same, um, you know, diagnosis or condition, but they're all unique individuals as people. So I'm going to approach each one of them a little bit different in terms of where they're coming from as a person, as, as their experience, how they perceive their experiences. And, um, you know, with that, uh, yeah, like I, like I mentioned, uh, depending on various factors like their intelligence level, their IQ, uh, how well they can grasp information, how insightful they are, um, what, like I said, what their life experiences have been, um, I may be able to go into more mindfulness with some. I might have to do more CBT with others. Um, I might have to take more of a behavioral approach with others. It just it depends. So I'm not going to approach every single one of them in the same way. I'm going to tailor my approach to um, what their individual experiences are, mostly. Yeah, I I really appreciate that because I believe that you don't take that cookie-cutter approach and you're going to see each one individually, although there are some standardized recommendations that we can make for people with compulsivity that we know are going to help them in general. Um, mm-hmm. So so I, I basically know that you have 
devoted your life to helping people in general. And if you were going to talk to my listening audience about sexual compulsivity, would you be able to give them some recommendations or guidance in general about their condition? Um, yeah, you know, I think it's really important with with compulsive behavior and more specifically sexual uh, compulsive behavior is to ask ourselves, ask yourselves, I'm, I'm talking to your listeners now, ask yourselves those old six journalistic questions of the, of the who, what, where, when, why, and how. And for anyone out there dealing with compulsivity uh, uh, of a sexual nature, um, ask yourself those questions every day uh, at any given point in time, uh, preferably before you've actually engaged in a behavior. Because once, once we've engaged in a behavior, it's out there. It's done. Like we can't, we can't take it back. It's one thing to think about something. It's another thing to feel something. And, you know, I don't, I, I think there are problematic thought patterns. So thought the way that we think can be um, lead us to problematic behavior, but having a thought and having an emotion is an internal processes. Those are internal processes. It's an internal process. It hasn't manifested in itself into anything yet. But once we've gone and engaged in the behavior, then that's when things get real. And so start asking yourself who, what, where, when, why, and how. And, and the answer, those are very, very honest, uh, earthy questions, deep-rooted questions that if you give yourself really, really honest answers, and you're not lying to yourself, and it is very difficult. It's very difficult to be honest with oneself. But if you can be honest enough with yourself and ask, you know, those questions uh, and giving yourself honest answers, it can really center you, and it can really put things into um, into perspective. So that that would be the first thing that comes to mind uh, for a sexual compulsive or someone dealing with any kind of addiction um, or compulsive behavior. Because a compulsion is a behavior, you know, an obsession is a thought. And so if you can start thinking in that way, change your thinking, change your behavior, change your emotional reactions to things. And, those, you know, human beings operate on those three spheres of, of functioning. If you break it down, I mean, basically that's how, we, that's how human beings exist. And function is what we do, you know, our behaviors, uh, our cognitions of what we think, and our emotions and what we feel. And they're mutually exclusive, very mutually exclusive, very, very different, but highly, highly correlated. So asking the who, what, where, when, why, and how of things and in your life can really help you to stop, just stop and start to think and start to process emotions before engaging in a behavior because it's the behaviors that really causes problems. Yeah, absolutely. And we're always looking for ways to slow down that process. So Dr. Peter Cooper, I thank you so much for spending your time with us. You've been really helpful. You've given us some real food for thought and um, I wish you the best. Let us know when that book is written. Do you have any idea yeah. when it may get published? 
Uh, so if anyone is out there, um, if anyone's out there who is a publisher, the, the book should be finished being written. Let's see, we're in uh, February 20, 2021. Uh, I'd like to have it completed by the end of the summer of 2021. That's realistic. And I'd like to have it published uh, at some point next year. So, you know, if, if I can plug myself or my contact information, um, you know, send me an email if you're a publisher and looking to, to publish some, a, good, a great uh, self-help book that, that really has been, I think, presented in a different, and, and different way and a unique way. Um, my email address is Pete, uh, that's P-E-T-E, Cooper, C-O-O-P-E-R, 1756 at gmail.com. That's, a, that's not a bad way to get in touch with me. Just shoot me an email if you're a publisher. Um, and, yeah, so I'd, I'd like to have it published sometime next year, and it should be finished being written by the end of the summer. Oh, yeah. Well, good luck to you, and keep us posted. And thanks again for the helpful advice tonight. Thank you so much, Carol. I really appreciate your time as well and, and all that you offer and, and how you help people as well. It's really great. All right. Hope to see you at the next SASH conference. You take care. I'll, I'll see you there. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Okay, so that was Dr. Peter Cooper, and he is working on the flow of self and sexuality. You heard how you could get a hold of him. And um, obviously, he is an abstract thinker. He can really apply concepts to metaphors. I could hear a little Jungian um, therapy in his heart. I am Carol, the coach, a.k.a. Carol Jurgensen Sheets. And of next week, we're changing times. Now, I know nobody listens to this show the time that it is, but we're actually going to start on Mondays. One of the ways that I'm leaning into retirement is I'm not going to work from 9 to 10 o'clock Eastern Standard Time any longer. So our show's going to be on at 2 o'clock on Mondays. But I doubt that that will affect many of you because most of you subscribe and um, you listen to it when you can, and I so appreciate that. And so I will talk to you soon. And as I say at the end of every show, there will only be one of you at all times. And I fearlessly want you to have the courage to be yourself. Make it a good one.